Since the start of the pandemic, online shopping has become more popular. But how is this affecting retail stores? In this episode, producer Daniel Johnson answers this question to understand what the future holds for the retail shopping industry. My name is Efwa Fojo and this is Unraveled. So this is me on my weekly trip to the Young and Eglinton Centre to run errands. The mall is located at the intersection of Young and Eglinton in Toronto, and it's a mixed-use centre with over 210 units of retail and over a million square feet of storefront. The property is owned by Rio Can, a real estate investment trust, and it houses prominent companies like Indigo, Sephora, Metro, and more. I've been coming here to run errands uh, about once a week for a long time, but I distinctly remember coming here for the first time after the pandemic, and it felt like not much had changed. The mall looked the same, and the main group of retailers survived. But so much had changed for the retail businesses that operate in this space. Between curbside pickup, digital integration, experiential retail, and more, major trends have been shaping the future of retail as it competes with e-commerce. Some say the pandemic has accelerated these trends, while others say the lines between e-commerce and retail no longer exist. In this episode, we will explore what the future of the retail market might look like. But let's back up a little bit here. I first got interested in retail when I worked at a Consumer Insights website before I was a journalism student. There I covered emerging trends in retail and worked on customized research reports for retail clients. I learned all about how retail integrated e-commerce into its operations, started loyalty programs, and in general looked for new and innovative ways to add value to consumers who made the trip to brick and mortar stores instead of just buying their products online. I also worked there when the pandemic first hit, and it was chaotic. It was a first-hand lesson in the potential for a crisis to change industries that now had to innovate to survive. Things like curbside pickup started to emerge, and suddenly e-commerce integration was a necessity. Many of the pre-pandemic trends got accelerated. One person who spoke about this acceleration is Carl Boutet. He's a retail strategist and author of The Great Acceleration, The Race to Retail Resilience. I asked him about what the Great Acceleration is and how it relates to the retail market. Yeah, so the Great Acceleration uh, is a, a term I coined back in April 2020 uh, during a friend of mine's book la- own book launch, uh, Steve Dennis. Uh, there was a panel uh, that we'd organized during his book launch where I was with uh, Scott Galloway, who's a, a famous sort of prognosticator, professor and entrepreneur out of the US and, uh, and Seth Godin, who is also a, a very well-known marketing uh, sort of guru, if we can use those terms still. And um, yeah, and basically uh, we were talking about the idea that, uh, you know, what we were witnessing, again, this is like one month into, uh, you know, the, 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 the pandemic and, and just sort of really starting to grasp uh, what was happening with all the lockdowns and the trends that were, that were occurring, the word acceleration was coming about more and more 
yeah, from from business leaders everywhere. They were just saying, listen, these, we're, we're witnessing trends, especially around digital adoption, online shopping, um, <clears throat> that we were uh, expecting to happen five, 10 years from now. We're, you know, we're, we're hitting those those expectations five weeks uh, into this pandemic. So it really caught everybody off guard and, uh, and basically, uh, but nothing was, uh, these were all trends that they were expecting. So why this was called the word acceleration was, was on everybody's uh, you know, mind at that point was, you know, everything's just sort of being pulled forward. And during that panel, I, I sort of, I, I came out and said, well, you know, we had uh, these, these, these greats that occurred in, in the past uh, century. We had the Great Depression. We had the Great Recession. Uh, and now could we look back on this period and consider it as the Great Acceleration? And that's where the term came from. And it was just basically reflecting on the fact that we sort of had this, this, this you know, this push of, of that were represented five to 10 years of, uh, of growth in a lot of these categories it was imposed on us and, and knowing that it wasn't going to be forever, but it was clearly sort of a, a portal into the future of how we were, you know, the trends that we were forecasting already for some time. Right. And then what, what were some of those trends that kind of were included in the great acceleration? E-commerce, right? So the shift to online, pure online buying, which, um, you know, was really here in Canada was probably depending on the category you're in, uh, it was sort of, Average data between ten and fifteen percent of uh, of our overall consumption was online, and that got pushed up to twenty five, thirty percent, and uh, in some cases over fifty. Clothing uh, retailer, for instance, where all your stores were shut down for a couple of months, then obviously it really it really went to all online. But I think more importantly, what I'm trying to communicate on the great acceleration is not that not purely the shift of e-commerce, but just the shift of digital adoption in general and the influences it's had around even things like curbside pickup, where people, where yes, we're buying online, but picking up in store and uh, and appointment booking and and virtual uh, uh, sort of FaceTime sessions or what we call live shopping. So all these other trends that kind of came on top of that. But yes, at the core, e-commerce was sort of the main one that, uh, that pushed the others to the forefront. And it was, uh, it was, these are very indicative, but I mean, the idea where people uh, think, well, then this was this the, is the great acceleration, the end of physical retail. And I, I push back and say, it's actually probably the biggest opportunity for physical retail. And that's really what I'm trying to stress. So this idea of a great acceleration or the idea that COVID-19 accelerated trends in the retail industry is something of a consensus for retail analysts like Carl. And it makes complete sense when you think about it, that things like e-commerce, which everyone knew would take over, became essential parts of every retail business in a very short period of time. One person that agrees with this is Bruce Winder, a retail analyst and author of the book Retail Before, During and After COVID-19. I asked him about how the pandemic has accelerated some of the major trends in retail. Probably the biggest trend, and there's a lot of them. And in my book, I talk about the top 80 trends, sort of, in my opinion. And some are, some are sort of larger than others. Probably the biggest trend that impacted retail right now, or has been impacting even before the pandemic, is the growth of e-commerce, the growth of online shopping. Um, so, you know, if you, if you think of online shopping, um, 
kind of had a, a bit of a, a push back around 2000. You know, it's really been accelerated with the pandemic for obvious reasons. I mean, e-commerce offers you a wide assortment. Uh, it's incredibly convenient. It's safe to shop. In other words, you don't have to go in a store for obvious reasons during the pandemic. And, um, you know, it's just it's just ultra convenient. So folks like Amazon have done a really good job um, in that space. But not only Amazon, other people um, such as the big retailers in Canada, like the Walmarts and the Canadian Tires have sort of, um, you know, up their game in that area. So e-commerce is a really big trend. And we were behind other countries and we're sort of catching up now. You know, there, there's been sort of a movement and this ties in with a number of other trends like a green trend overall, um, a trend as it relates to environmental protection, environmental uh, stewardship, sustainability. Bruce goes on to talk about how green trends in retail had a major push around 2007, but then kind of waned a bit during the 2008 recession and then made a comeback in the years later. He adds that he expected a similar trend to take place during the pandemic, but that green just kind of kept going despite the pandemic, and that it's not just a trend that consumers look for, but it's also something that investors prioritize as well. Bruce goes on to highlight some of the other trends. Big institutional investors are looking for companies for, with a uh, you know a sustainability program, corporate social responsibility program. That's when things get done, and um, that that's that's another uh, major trend. Um, also, um, digitally native brands. So um, we've seen brands that have sort of started online only in retail, where it used to be if you're a retailer and you started you started sort of with a store. Well, now a lot of brands don't do that. They've said we're starting online. That is our storefront. And hey, over time, we're going to add a, a brick and mortar store or two. Um, so that's another one. Another one that's been interesting is direct to consumer DTC. And um, that's quite an interesting uh, situation, but it's really where brands who normally are wholesalers sell directly to consumers. And Nike was one of the first and probably the best to do that. Obviously, this, this gained a lot of traction during the pandemic because a lot of stores were closed and wholesalers and brands couldn't rely on retail as much. So they said, you know what, we need to keep our business going. We're going to ship directly to consumer. And instead of sharing that profit with a retailer, we're going to take that profit, but we're also going to take on operational costs in terms of picking, packing and shipping and things of that nature. Um, and that's where the profitability issue lies. So DTC has been um, a major trend as well. One interesting thing uh, about Bruce that you heard there is that he considers Amazon as part of the retail industry and not just an e-commerce business. He thinks that the lines between retail and e-commerce are blurring, but I'll let him explain that. Well, I think that when you think of retail now, retail is all channels. So it used to be you'd think retailers, oh, do you have a store? If you don't have a store, you're not a retailer, you're an e-tailer. I think that's gone now. I think that differentiation is gone. And now it's just retail. And retail can be whether I have a uh, Dickie D bike that I'm selling ice creams on or whether I have a store or whether I have a website on Shopify. You know, retail is everywhere and everything. So I include them now in retail for that reason. Bruce also believes that retail businesses are starting to embrace social responsibilities. Massively important. It, it's a game changer. It's a table stake. If you're not doing that, you're not going to be around uh, soon. Uh, because not only will consumers balk you, especially young consumers like Gen Z and, and millennials, and I'm not trying to stereotype, but I have to look at broad trends, but also investors, as I mentioned, you know, even, even the big investment 
pension funds and things won't invest in you. Even the big Wall Street banks won't invest in you if you don't have a robust, um, you know, realistic uh, customer focused and environmental focused strategy. So it's it's absolutely a table stake now. Bruce also has a really interesting perspective on where the retail industry is going. And I asked him what changes he thinks might take place over the next 10 to 20 years. I actually have a draft of something, and I won't disclose the whole thing, but I wrote sort of about 30, 40 pages last year on what I call Retail 2050. And I haven't published it yet, so I've been thinking about that. Um, I do think that you're going to continue to see technology um, enable our lives. Um, you're going to see acceleration of technology. You're going to see a much greater role of uh, robotics um, and, and, and everything we do, whether it's at the store, whether it's around our house, driving the cars, you know, autonomous, right? So you're going to see technology and robotics and AI just play a much greater role in our lives. That's going to be probably the biggest trend. Um, you're probably going to see a polarization, a continued polarization of retail where you really have the big folks at the top. And the tiny folks, there's a trend I talk about in my book called micro retailing. And it really means that everyone's a retailer. Um, Everyone has a side hustle, which is selling something, a service or a product. Part of it is to supplement wages, which are stagnant and probably will continue to stagnate um, versus inflation. But people, everyone will become a little merchant on the side. And folks like Shopify and Amazon are going to enable that with their marketplaces and their hosting. And um, so you're going to see a, an industry that's completely polarized, big and small, but, but they'll work together. It's not going to be an adversarial relationship. And I look at people like Amazon. Amazon is not playing an adversarial relationship with small companies. They're not saying, let's kill the small companies and eat their lunch. They're saying, no, 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 let's work with them so that we can form an ecosystem. It's like a parasitic relationship, right? That sounds horrible, but you know, it's, it's really a sort of a symbiotic relationship between big, big animal and small animal to help each other. And I think that's one of the things that uh, Amazon has done, and you'll see a lot more of that in the future. So Bruce has some really unique ideas around how retail and life as a whole might change over the next one to two decades. But in the short term, how can retail businesses compete in today's market and add value to consumers to visit a physical location who could easily just buy their items online? To answer that question, I spoke to Chris Lombardo. He's a staff writer for Strategy Magazine, and he also writes for Media and Canada and Stimulant. Chris routinely covers the retail market. I asked Chris about experiential retail. Uh, You have retail stores that were trying to fashion themselves as community hubs. So when e-com started to take off, like what's the point of a a massive footprint retail uh, space? You had to sort of convert that even more so during the pandemic into something tangible, something useful. And an example of that would be uh, I think a golf town, which, uh, you know, I mean, you could basically, I don't know, I don't golf, but you could presumably buy clubs on Amazon. I don't see why not, but they are trying to convert themselves into this hub where they have uh, technology to analyze your swing. So they have, uh, you know, all that kind of uh, technological capability, but they also have professionals coming in. They have uh, famous people coming in that they've co-branded with. So it actually makes me want to go there, even though I don't golf. It seems like a fun place. So that's just another example of a place that's trying to make itself community oriented. And you have a I guess uh, Mountain Equipment Co-op trying to do that too. So it's not just a 
place where you, you know, grab your Columbia uh, shoes and a backpack or whatever, but it's a place where you learn about climbing and inter, in, interface with all these different travelers and, and all these types of uh, lifestyle oriented people. So the, the, your standard retail space is uh, completely uh, changed. Other strategies for how retail can create value for consumers to visit a brick and mortar store come from Pietro Nensi, the Costco corporate foods vice president. As a side note, Costco is one of my favorite stores, and spoiler, I did ask him when consumers might see in-store samples return. Well, our stores, uh, basically, there's always items, uh, as you know, we call them treasure hunts. So when you come into a Costco, uh, there's always something new that is probably not online yet, uh, or it's attested to our location. Um, there's there's the gas that is a big feature. Uh, our members are using that uh, that service a lot. We have also ancillary services like pharmacy, etc. Uh, that I think optical. So there's a lot of other services that the members uh, have access uh, into a Costco that they don't have online. So but for us, it's the it's the overall package, right? When you look at the business, uh, you, we have to be good in, in store. We have to good be, be strong online. We have to have good uh, other services, we call them. And ultimately, if we do all, all, all that and we are able to show value, then that the members uh, are happy, they, they buy, they come often, and they renew uh, at, at a good rate. So this is this is what we uh, basically, that's, that's our report card, our, uh, you know, our membership renewal. Right. And so one of the things that I think of when I think of going to Costco is samples. Uh, have you guys brought those back yet since the pandemic, or is that something you guys are looking to do in the future? No, we, we brought them back, but in a, in a uh, smaller way. Um, what we do now, we put, uh, we give a full sample and tell the member, please consume at home. We put uh, example chips, eight or ten chips in a little bag, sealed, consume at home. It's working well. Uh, the, the ones that we cannot uh, give uh, an item to the member to, to bring at home, we put uh, a sample of what it could look like, and we call it a talking demo. Uh, but our, our, our goal is to come back to what we used to do, cooking demos, giving samples, abundance of samples. We want the members to, to, to have that experience. And for us, to, to be honest, it, it's, a, it's a great marketing tool for vendors to, um, to showcase their items uh, into a Costco, uh, the, you know, the demo program. If you, ever, if, you, if you talk to any member or most of our members, they're going to say what you prefer the most to Costco. But, you know, there's the value, of course, the assortment, but the demos are all, always part of the top three, uh, what our members are looking for. So, yes, to your question, as soon as we can, the, the, the ovens will start and, we, and we'll do what we do best. In addition to in-store samples, Pietro also spoke about Costco's future outlook and how current supply bottlenecks may impact the business. You know, the, uh, the brick and mortar will remain. Uh, for us, um, for us, we, we, we believe the brick and mortar will be, uh, it's the foundation of our company, it's, 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 it will continue, it's the best way that we can operate. We cannot undermine the, 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 the .com, .ca business. Uh, we have to be, we say to ourselves, we have, we have to be as good as what we offer to our member in store online. So both will be hand in hand. It has to be a, you know, an obsession of, of ours every day to be the best. 
the the thing that I don't really know is is with this uh, and I and I think it's temporary and I hope it is. All this logistic issues that we're living living with the containers, uh, with the logistics, uh, the freight, the inflation, and um, and of course it's cyclical. But what we're living today is uh, the inflation is a bit more uh, aggressive that uh, that we uh, ever expected and ever seen before. So, and I know that's not your 10, 20 years that you were looking for, but the the, the next three to five years, that's worrisome. If I look more long term. Um, international uh, it will play a big part of our increase. Large retailers like Costco can offer a great future perspective on business operations. Other important perspectives about the industry can come from landlords. Many retailers rent space, sometimes to a real estate investment trust or REIT. REITs with retail portfolios offer a great temperature check on the industry as they are essentially betting on the future of these businesses. One of these REITs is Rio Can, a Canadian REIT with over 214 properties, including my own frequent shopping destination, the Young and Eglinton Centre. All of its portfolio is in Canada. If anyone knows Canadian retail, it's them. They have a serious amount of skin in the game. I caught up with Rio Can CEO Jonathan Gitlin to ask him about the retail market, including Rio Can's focus on mixed-use development properties or properties with both residential and retail tenants in one building? Well, a number of things, but what I would start with is the fact that we have in our portfolio, I mean, we've been in business for 27 years, right? So we've amassed a portfolio of properties that you know, when we bought them, we bought them for good retail fundamentals. They were, they were really well located, they had penetrated neighborhoods. They were typically on main streets and really good intersections that, you know, again, had great visibility, which was paramount for our retailers. Well, it turns out that years later, that these are the same attributes that make for really good mixed-use developments, where the cities want growth because, by and large, they're on transit. And a lot of our properties, they're, you know, they, the, the, I would say the fundamental elements of a retail property, particularly an unenclosed one, is that they've got very big parking fields and not a lot of building coverage. So as a you know, prudent asset manager, we took a look at this portfolio and said, well, Geez, are we really doing what's it's you know are we really utilizing highest and best use here and uh, particularly when they're right on transit and you know in Toronto as you probably know transit's hard to come by so we just felt that there was more opportunity for us to get those properties entitled for this you know residential along with retail and over time we've been we've been redeveloping them and really just knocking down some older retail and reinstituting better, more forward-looking, forward-thinking retail along with residential above it. And then the second element and why it's so important to do this is because you know, Rio Can is really good at retail and we're getting far better at residential. And when you've got an owner of a property that, that is going to own both elements for a very long time, as we, we, we desire to do, Neither one of those uses is going to be an afterthought. They're both going to be prominent. And, you know, what you've seen in Toronto is when you have a lot of merchant developers, you know, a lot of these condo developers, um, they'll build retail at grade because they have to, and then they'll forget about it. So the design of the retail won't be favorable for tenants. It won't be favorable for consumers. It's all sort of an afterthought to the residential above it. We're going to own both 
you know, both assets for a very long time, the retail and the residential. So we work hard at making sure that both work, that both integrated with one another. And because for us, great retail is an excellent amenity for the residential above it. And the retailers love having the residential above it because it brings in uh, consumers. So it's this really good marriage of uses. And so for us, again, it just makes sense for, uh, for us to build those, those really integrated uses. So as you can see here, mixed-use development is something of a focus for RioCan, where they look to create a reciprocal relationship between retail and residential tenants. RioCan was an early mover on mixed-use developments and even launched a residential brand in 2018 named RioCan Living. I asked Jonathan about RioCan's focus on six major markets in Canada, including major cities like Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal. Sure, it's just demographics, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we want to put our unit holders' money into places where we believe there's long-term growth. And with the most respect to other uh, other cities in Canada, because there are some other wonderful cities, the six that we've chosen simply have the better growth profiles. Uh, you know, with this country benefits from a very robust immigration policy, which is great. And when people come in from other countries, they tend to go to some of the larger markets as well, there's a lot of migration, not just immigration, but migration within Canada where people who have grown up in smaller markets often come to places like Toronto or Montreal or Calgary to, for education and then ultimately just you know, plant their flag there and end up, uh, end up staying in those cities, which leads to a significant amount of growth opportunities. And what we really do is we listen to our tenants. And when we sit down with our tenants at the beginning of each year and say, okay, tell us about your growth ambitions for this year, you know, more often than not, what they're saying is we want more space in places like the greater Toronto area or, you know, Montreal or Vancouver, then they'll be, you know, then they'll say about, let's say Saskatoon, which is again, a great city, great community, but we're just listening to what our tenants are saying. And then when it comes to development, again, it just, you know, it, it doesn't pencil out to build vertical in some of those other cities, whereas in places like Toronto, where there's a, a significant housing, um, housing crisis, a supply shortage, we feel very good about building to, uh, to at least provide a bit of balance to that shortage. Right. And then one of the other things I've heard you talk about is the importance that uh, retail is transit accessible. Does that also impact the decision to focus on those major markets where transit is more accessible in cities like Toronto? Yeah. And I think, listen, uh, where the government invests in transit is typically it follows growth, right? It follows population growth. So it stands to reason that there's a lot more transit that's being dedicated to a place like the greater Toronto area. And it's not just Toronto, but places like Hamilton, Oakville, um, Oshawa, you name it. Uh, and we want to and we we simply follow that infrastructure, uh, not just because that infrastructure is being built up there, but that's also where population is growing. And, you know, along with this, this infrastructure, I mean, if you take Oshawa for, it's a great example. We've owned land in North Oshawa near the 407 for quite some time. And we've started uh, probably about three or four years ago building residential there along with some great retail. And the reason it's successful is because, you know, the 407 is there. So there's a significant amount of vehicular traffic. But they've now, because the 407 is there, they've built up a few colleges and universities there which has brought a, a tremendous amount of population growth to that area, uh, not just because of the students, but all the jobs that are associated with those, those schools and universities. So it's sort of like, you know, infrastructure follows population growth, and we, we love those attributes. So we follow both those things and end up building there. Right. 
And then has the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, has that impacted the type of tenants that Rio Can has? Is there more of a focus on things like grocery stores or anything like that? Mm. Well, the pandemic definitely, you know, threw a bit of a curveball in a lot of the businesses that we cater to. Um, I mean, we were very happy before COVID to cater to experiential businesses, you know, things like gyms and movie theaters, uh, sit down restaurants, things that were harder to be disintermediated by the internet and e-commerce. Um, and, and we felt very good about that strategy. And then of course, COVID threw uh, you know, a, a major curveball uh, and sort of hit that strategy right square in the nose. But it doesn't mean you know, we're long-term thinkers. So I don't think that those, those strategies go away, but it did, it did curtail our views a little bit. And so we have focused on, on things that, that are a little more resilient, um, but really what we are is long-term thinkers. So we're focused on, I think, types of businesses that we think will, will be you know, growth oriented far beyond just the pandemic. So we're happy, again, to cater to gyms and to restaurants again. And I, I think that those are really growth industries that will stand the test of time. But there are certain categories that have seen weakness, not just because of the pandemic. In fact, before the pandemic, um, like apparel, uh, where we are lightening our load a little bit. Um, but again, I think that this whole notion, you know, the COVID, COVID, a lot of people said, well, it accelerated the, the, the struggles of brick and mortar retail. I strongly disagree with that, Daniel. I say what it did was actually reinforce the importance of bricks and mortar retail because it, it put a huge amount of pressure and stress on people to get their goods in unconventional ways. And so a lot of people were forced to, whether they were used to it or not, have things delivered to their door. And by and large, they weren't loving it. Um, I mean, I think that there were a lot of things, the damages to packages and, and theft of packages and you know, just the whole notion of returning things. It became very unwieldy and a bit of a burden for our consumers who wanted to get control back over the consumer process. So they started, I think, focusing on more of a hybrid pattern where they would, you know, they would order things online to pick them up in store so they can see them, they can control the process. And I think that really brought to light the, the importance of brick and mortar retail, because what it serves is this exceptional um, facilitation of, of last mile delivery that has penetrated these neighborhoods. I mean, if you look at our demographic profile, it's remarkable. We've got um, you know over 300,000 people living within a five-kilometer radius of our average property, and a household income of over 125 grand in that same average radius. So that you know retailers don't want to give up on that. In fact, they want to emphasize the importance of those what I call facilitation centers right in the middle of these properties. So regardless of what kind of tenants we're catering towards, there's a huge amount of demand. And I think it flies in the face of the popular narrative out there, but there's a huge amount of demand for those well-penetrating spaces. Did you catch that? Jonathan pushes back pretty heavily on the idea of a great acceleration. Jonathan also has some interesting ideas on the future of retail. And I asked him to paint a picture of how retail may change in the next one or two decades. Well, I'm going to paint the picture for you by pointing to that, which a lot of you wouldn't know what it is, but that's actually a picture of the well, which is our eight acre site in downtown Toronto, um, which is over 3.1 million square feet of mixed use property. It's got residential, it's got office, and it has retail. And the type of retail, that is, that is urban enlighten, enlightenment, if you want to call it that. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an open air environment that does have, like you're covered from the elements. 
But the type of retail that we're going to have there is predominantly restaurant-based, entertainment-based, gym-based or physical fitness-based, along with this great open-air marketplace, which will have a number of smaller purveyors of, of fresh and prepared foods, which I think will cater unbelievably to that downtown West neighborhood. So to me, that is that is like great urban retail. But then on the flip side, I don't want to forget or underemphasize what is still critical to the retail environment. And that is a good, solid, open air suburban shopping center. I mean, these things have not lost their luster or their demand. And so for us, the future of retail in that regard is simplicity. It's a great grocery anchor shopping center with other necessity based uses that accompany it. And I think those things are going to be well fortified for the future. Thankfully, Rio can owns a number of them and we don't expect to lighten our load in that regard. So I think you're going to have, when it's an urban environment, you're going to have a lot more mixed use like the well. And in a suburban environment, I think you're going to have a classic open air shopping center, which will show some changes. Don't get me wrong. There are going to be changes to those open air shopping centers. You know, as I said before, a lot of our tenants are utilizing this click and collect model. So we're going to have a bit of a different drive aisle for to cater to that. We're going to have different signage to cater to that. Uh, and there might be some different uses within those shopping centers, but they're there for the long haul. So that was Jonathan's colorful way of projecting the future of retail and using the picture hanging in his office as an example. The painting is a picture of the well construction site. In many ways, the well encapsulates a lot of the things he speaks about. It's situated in one of Canada's major markets and is transit accessible. It's a mixed-use development with an interdependent ecosystem of retail and residential tenants. The retail side of the development attracts the residents, and the residents attract the retail businesses. However, despite predictions, the future of retail is like the future of any industry. It remains to be seen. Time will tell how it will compete with or adopt e-commerce principles, and to what extent e-commerce and retail will remain separate industries or merge into one. Time will also tell to what extent supply chain problems will hurt the industry. Also remains to be seen is if a great acceleration will have lasting effects on the industry or not. Is professor is Amanda Capito. And special thanks to Lindsay Hanna and Angela Glover.